Hey there, this is Nicole Cobra Esquire, and welcome to CEOs and Soul Talk. I am an executive coach and business strategist, as well as an attorney. I've been managing businesses for more than 15 years and grown my own firm, Cobra Johnson & Romney, into a multi-million dollar operation. And I want to help you do the same. But in my podcast, we'll be talking to some of the most inspiring individuals who are also CEOs and show you what led to their success today. During each episode, we'll share their stories, but also their advice on how to uncover what it takes to be the CEO of your soul. And today I am delighted and honored to have with me Mr. Peter Abrams, who happens to be my dear friend and publisher and market president for the Washington Business Journal. Peter, how are you, my friend? I am good. How are you, Nick? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. This, you know, this feels like our regular conversation. <laughs> this is how so we do, brother. This like is it. how we do. Isn't I it like great? It. So listen, I'll give our audience a little background because the people that I bring in here, I'm so blessed that I have such a nice circle. And it's not just a circle of people that kind of are like, hey, I like you, girl. My circle tells me exactly what I need to be doing personally and professionally. But you guys are trailblazers in your own right. So I just appreciate you being here today. Well, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So listen, I want to give our um, our listeners a perspective on CEOs, but some things that are not formal. You know, we always have our suit and tie and our pumps on when we're going out in the world. I never have my pumps You don't have your pumps. That's true. You let me do the honors on that. (laughs) But we go out in the world and I think there's this myth that, you know, you just kind of woke up one day and you were the publisher of this amazing, you know, news institution. But what I want to do is really show them the humanity and the steps behind what it took to get there. So if you can, just give us your background and and tell us what were some pivotal moments in you becoming the publisher of the Washington Business Journal. Sure. And I'll do my best not to bore the audience. So I'll try and make it as quick as (laughs) possible. There is never a dull moment with you, my friend. And I've only been really the uh, publisher market president of the Business Journal for five months. So it's still a bit new to me. Uh, but you're but you are legendary in the oh, publishing. I, so I need you to go back. All right. All right. Tell us about your first company. And well, I think that, you know, things, that's okay? a, it's actually a good start. So I uh, graduated from college, didn't know what I was going to do. I had saved money working through high school um, and all sorts of odd jobs. I had always worked, you know, really in high school, 40 hours a week. Took 40 that, hours. Yeah. Now, why is that? I think that's important, too. So, you know, what was what were your upbringing like? Where were you born and raised? So, wow, we're going to go far yes, back. Yes, we are. Yep. We're, still on the we're going to take the way back bus <laughs> on this. Uh, so I was born in South Bend, Indiana. Okay. Uh, moved to New York for a few months when I was eight, then moved to Boston, which is effectively where I grew up. My parents were divorced by the time we moved to Boston. Uh, so to answer your question, I worked because I wanted money. I know that's right. And it wasn't a choice. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like a lot of things in my life, you know, bump in the night, I um yeah, I started working and took on more hours and took on more responsibility. And, you know, I was making the whopping salary when I started of, I think it was two thirty-five an hour. I love it. Um, and worked at a grocery store. Uh, uh, my first job actually was cleaning out um, all of the gunk from an ice cream store, which was below where I lived. Mm-hmm. And really it was a motivation because it smelled bad and the bugs would get in the summer. The bugs were everywhere. 
So I went down and asked him if I could clean it. And he said, yeah, do you want to clean it for free ice cream? So that was my very first, <laughs> first, oppor- compensation, yeah, huh? my the first compensation was unlimited <laughs> ice cream. Um, and, you know, then then worked. I took that money uh, just after I graduated and started my own company. And it was a, effectively a talent agency. I was selling novelty talent like mimes and jugglers and really? comedians and the early all sorts. PT Barnum. Exactly. Okay. Uh, and mostly the universities. So I would do their okay. spring flings in there for senior days. And um, I was clearly not very good because I essentially went out of business and um, lost pretty much everything. And I had my grandfather's old leather chair and two army duffel bags, threw him in a car and moved down to DC uh, in 89. Wow. Started as a a temp agency working in IT, actually, um, selling software. And that's what I thought I wanted to do. And um, at that time, it was kind of the pre-IPOs when people were throwing money at companies on the Dulles Toll Road, which is out near Dulles Mm -hmm. Airport Mm -hmm. uh, in Northern Virginia. Um. And through a crazy series of uh, events, I ended up in the publishing industry in 91 and worked for a company called Hanley Wood, which was probably the most fortunate um, thing that could have happened because it was an amazing company. I had amazing people to learn from. I'm still close Mm -hmm. now, you know, almost 30 years later with a lot of the people who mentored me and um, whom I hope I had an impact on um, and was there for a little uh, over three years and then went to a custom publisher um, in Washington, D.C. called The Magazine Group, worked for two more amazing people um, with whom I'm still close and still consider them mentors and friends. And um, we did design, production, editorial, and sales for a number of clients, okay. associations, um, and corporations like WebMD, who really didn't want to install their own publishing operation, but understand it, you know, it. Mm-hmm. Had, a, had a very clear understanding that um, the, they needed to get the information on. It. A magazine was a great way to do it. So we d- we produced those magazines for them um, and then went on in 2004 to launch DC Magazine, which was a luxury uh magazine. I became a partner in 05. We sold the company in 07 and then Mm -hmm. again in 2010. Um, And then I made the crazy decision in 2017 um, to depart the publishing and and media business entirely through a crazy circumstance. Um, I ended up running a gin distillery in San Francisco for a couple of years and then came back just a few months ago uh, to take over the helms of of Washington Business Journal. Um, There have only been in the last 20 years, two publishers, Alex Orfinger and James McGregor, both of whom are still with the company, both of whom are still officed in in my office in D.C. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is full circle. I love it. I love it. You know what we really want to do. I mean, I, there were so many nuggets in there. I always want to go back and see, you know, where the, did you have glimmers of who you would be now then? So what I got out of the PT Barnum story was, you know, you're a hustler, you're very entrepreneurial, which takes a lot of courage, right? It takes a little, you, you saw something that other people didn't see that visionary was there very early. So here's what I would tell you, which is it's probably easier for you to see it than for me to, for see, you to see it. You couldn't I, see it. It was, it was necessity. Mm-hmm. I did not have a grand plan. I was, you know, I, I wish I could sit back here and tell you and um, your listeners that I had some incredible master plan, which laid out perfectly that, you know, I dreamt up when I was 19. Um, but I wouldn't call it desperation, but it was necessity. I needed to work. I wanted to be, you know, I, whatever that next thing was, I wanted whatever that next thing was. It was a bit of a means to an end. I mean, mm-hmm. I knew I wanted a house that was, I wanted, um, 
you know, certain, not just material things, but Mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure I had some level of security and you kind of look at the landscape and you say, what's next? How do I get there? Um, And so that was what drove me. It was, um, it was just kind of a desire for what's next and knowing that I was going to have to take some jobs that maybe were not perfect for me. I mean, you know, I look at a lot of the people I interview now and um, they're unwilling to start at the bottom. And I was not just willing to, but hungry to. So um, when I first moved down here, I worked for a temp firm and I worked in the collections agency of a, or the collections department of a software firm. It was horrible, but but it afforded me, I, you know, I happened to collect more revenue than anyone else. The sales manager saw me and said, I think you're a salesman. I said, Ooh, I'm not a salesman. And in fact, clearly I was. And he gave me that opportunity. um, And it was just, you know, there was a guy next to me who was selling more than me. It bothered me. And so I wanted to. So that competitive drive had purpose to it. So I want to talk a little bit about my little formula on success. I think that businesses and the way they're structured, uh, your org chart, your CEO, your COO and your team, um, what I encourage my listeners to do is apply those that model in your personal life. And what I heard you saying a lot about your past is your decision making, the C executive or the CEO um, is your des- executive skill making um, decisions. Now, I did hear you say that you made a lot of decisions out of necessity, right? I think that being the CEO of your soul is that you know what you're good at, you know what your strengths are, and you can, while there may be some things that you do because you have to do, but you do some things that you know that lie in your strengths and your purpose. What, think back on a couple of decisions that you made that, you know, you talk about when you left and went to the distillery, was there something that was in you in terms of a, a passion or purpose that you that led to maybe not the right outcome, but it it did put you in the direction of something that you valued? So you call it a crazy decision, but let's look back on some of the decisions you've made that you're like, no, but there was something in me that felt good. And that's the reason that I went in that direction. So I should clarify, I didn't make those decisions irresponsibly. And many times along the way, I said no or not for me. I think uh, I would. And then I'll give you a little bit of background kind of in in how I still make those decisions. I think I'm, you know, I'm immature in that way. I don't think my decision making skill set has improved that much. I think I still use many of the same tactics. Um, But I I think it's partly the speed in which you make those decisions Hmm. um, and not being afraid to trust your gut and some of the analysis you do to make that decision. I often see people who believe that they should do something who are unwilling to to take that risk or to make that decision. So I have a a foundation that helps me in pretty much everything that I do. Um, I don't believe that you can be successful. I think there are four things you have to have. So I follow those. I followed them for most of my career. I think you have to believe in the overall market of the product or service you're selling. In other words, I think you have to believe that there isn't a market for whatever you're doing. Correct. And that doesn't mean that it has to exist. You can also create it, but that's a whole other set of parameters. Mm -hmm. I think you have to believe in your company. I think you've got to believe that your company, it may have a a great product or a great service, but if you don't believe in it and you're willing to kind of put your 
life reputation on the line for the company, you won't be successful. I think you have to believe that, um, the, the exactly what you're selling. So I'll give you a specific example. Mm -hmm. When when I worked for a software company, it checked off all those boxes. There were two different product groups you could sell for one product group. I did not believe in at all. One I did. And that's the one I worked for. for. Um, and I think the, the fourth thing is you've got to believe in yourself. Yes. And I think at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. So you put yourself at the end of that four. I do. What about above the, above the product or service? Because if, if you can't sell it, if you don't believe in it, then no matter what the thing is, you understand? I do. So here's the answer that I believe. Um, and I put myself last very intentionally. Most of my career over the last 20 years, I've been managing people. Correct. So I have to be able to check all those other boxes before I can even look at myself because I, I have understand. to assume that there are other people who are going to be involved in that process. Got it. And um, I also think it's a bit arrogant to put yourself first. Well, listen, I, I do believe that. So so we've taken care of, you know, how you make decisions and the things that you have pur- purpose in. And I love your four, the four pieces of analysis that that you talk about. You also really alluded to the COO, which I tell people needs to reside within you too, which is your operations. Are you willing to do the work, you know, and you've definitely demonstrated that you have always been a hustler, that you have always um, thought out, okay, this is what I want to do, and then followed it up with great action. Give give our listeners, because I know you've shared this with me um, you know, and, and our friends offline, but the strategy, you know, for a person that is so quote busy, I think that that's a bad word. We're all busy, but some of us have a couple extra items. Give us some tips and tools on, you know, how you proceed through the day in terms of, you know, how do you prioritize your action items? Do mm-hmm. you have any tips or tools that you use regularly? I do. To get it all done. I do. Thanks to June Fletcher from Winning Awesome. Ways Give her a and, shout out. And Brian Tracy. Uh, there's a great story. I think it's called Eat the Frog. Yes. And uh, I did not eat the frog for a long time. And what that means is really the thing you're dreading first of the day, get it out of the way. Do that. Because otherwise it'll sit on your shoulder croaking at you all day long and you won't be able to get anything else done. Um, You know, I, there are a couple things I struggle with, quite frankly, and I'm extremely aware of them. I get a lot of emails and texts. I try to respond to all of them and I don't. Um, You've been on the receiving end of. You finally returned my call and you're here. Yay. So it's still a work in progress, to be honest with you. But what I try and do is I I prioritize. I have five things I must do every day day. Mm -hmm. and I cannot end the day without them. And I I write that list uh, the night ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And then I have eight things I should do and I work to get through those. So once I get through those 13 items, then I can move on to the other things. Um, But I I really try and manage that because I'm moving from meeting to meeting. And there are days when I'll only have, you know, two hours free during the day. So you have to maximize those um, and make the most of it. And I think that, you know, you also have to surround yourself with good people, be willing to delegate, which is something that I'm still learning Mm -hmm. um, at the Mm -hmm. ripe young age of 54, um, to understand what you need to handle yourself, what other people can help you with, where they might be more efficient. I'm very fortunate at, especially at the Washington Business Journal, um, the team there is, I am by far the weakest link. We've got an extraordinary team who understands um, where their strengths lie Mm -hmm. and what their roles are. And they fill the gaps incredibly well. So in that situation, um, 
you know, I would tell you that uh, I lean on our team quite a bit. That's um, you asked a question earlier, which I think leads into that, which is work-life balance. Yes. Um, and yes. we'll talk about that in a second, but I think that goes to remember this com- this part of the conversation because it's very much part of. Well, you know, we'll go right balance. into it because you 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 hit on my team um, team part of you know being the CEO of your soul. It it absolutely involves having a strong team, and I and I mean that practically you know in your business, but your home life too. Your your the circle. You know we have different levels of um, engagement with people, right? Um, you and I we belong to a I guess you can call it a CEO or a peer group. And that's, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's how Peter and I first connected a few years ago. And it's a great um, resource because... I wouldn't characterize us as, you know, going to, you know, Taco Bell every day together or, (laughs) but when we get together, we talk about our business, we talk about our personal life and challenges and you get that objective lens. So that is um, something that's important, but we all, uh, everyone in our group always admires Peter for his, his agile and easy recollection of people, names, positions in terms of relationships and networking. And and he does it in an authentic and meaningful way. And my question to you, just um, just a little bit is, you know, how important is relationship building professionally and personally in your life? And um, because I, I know a lot of people that struggle with that word networking, but I, I take that, nom- that, that name away and I just say it's really authentic relationships that you develop with people. And that does lead to successes in your business and personal life, right? Yeah, I, it's funny. I don't know that I've ever isolated or looked at it in, in quite that much detail. What I would tell you is um, I don't, uh, approach it as a skill I want to hone or I'm focused on it. It kind of happens organically. Mm-hmm. And I would tell you, I was very fortunate. Um, early on in my career, I worked for a gentleman by the name of John Carroll, who has since passed away. Really remarkable man. Um, and he, there were two things that he used to drill into my head. The first one is that no one is below your respect. And that was critically important to him. He didn't care if it was the trash guy in his building up to the CEO of a Fortune 10 company. They all got his his fair, genuine, honest respect. And I think that has impacted me because you just – I don't assume that anyone – has more value than someone else. Um, the other thing that he really drilled into my head was you have to be curious. He said, be curious like a little kid. He said, and he said, I know you were like that. (laughs) I know you were one of those annoying kids. And I said, I can't tell you how many times my grandfather was like, please stop, but no more (laughs) questions. Like just enjoy the sights. Um, so I tend to ask a lot of questions more out of curiosity because I want to know people and I don't, I'm not looking for an advantage or something I can draw upon later. It just happens. You, you ask the questions, you store those nuggets. And somehow, as you keep asking questions of other people, something will pop up and it will trigger a memory or a relationship or a conversation that all of a sudden it's, so I'm not desirous to share it, but it's one of those like aha moments where you're sitting there and, yeah. and you'll realize that what someone has just said dovetails perfectly, perfectly. with 
a friend or an uh, an acquaintance or a colleague what they're looking for, what they need, what direction they're moving forward in. Yes. Um, and I think that the one thing I am very intentional is introductions and relationships for me are currency. Yes. And um, I don't like to waste them because if you make an introduction that isn't valuable on either side, it doesn't take very long for people to go, you know what? He's a nice guy. I'm not sure they say that, but I must, I'm going to, we're going to make <laughs> that do. assumption. Okay. Um, and, but his introductions are a waste of time. A waste of time. And so I, that is very intentional. I think about, can these people help each other in a meaningful way, be it business or social or personal or spiritual or yeah. whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. That's the only part that's intentional, but I think asking questions, um, even though I'm talking now and, and talking less, listening more is is probably something A, I work on to this day and I find really important. I love that. I appreciate that as well. So let's kind of circle back to um, this work family balance. Um, I'm always what I wanted, what I strive to do in these conversations is really keep a level of authenticity. And I think when people are, uh, look at successful people such as yourself, that they wonder, geez, do they have, do they have it all together? You know, are they perfectly balanced in every area? And so I just want to ask you, and I, and I also think that women always get this question. So I'm an equal opportunity, uh, question asker. You know, work-life balance, like, do you struggle with that? Do you, uh, and and what are some tools and tips if you do? How no, do you get not at all. It? I have a perfect, <laughs> I work 12 hours a week and I. <laughs> and nobody suffers. And nobody suffers. <laughs> I struggle with this question. I have not been particularly good at it. I don't think it has anything to do with gender. Um, for me, my job is not nine to five or whatever your typical office hours right. are. I'm, it's constantly on my mind. I'm constantly thinking about it. And that's not necessarily because that's an expectation of anyone but myself. Um, as I get older and as my kids get older, I do think about it and worry about it a bit more, but I'm terrible at it. Mm -hmm. Um, partly because I love what I do. You're obsessed. Yeah. But yeah. A bit yeah. obsessed. Yeah. Um, and that might be a, a stretch, but somewhere between love and obsession. Um, so I don't know that I'm the best person to um, to ask that question. I, I will tell you that, um, and you and I have had offline conversations about this, the gender um, inequality between how people view a, a male executive and a female executive is something that I think we've got to address. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's anyone's business how someone manages their work-life balance. I think it's up to the individual it's yes. unless it's harming um, either their company or their family. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that's their decision. You know. um, but I think there is um, – it's interesting. I do think there's a bit of a double standard that somehow there's an expectation that, um, you know, women still have a parental or familial yeah. obligation where men don't, which is um, absurd for me. I've been very fortunate. I've worked for amazing bosses. Most of the people I've worked for have been women, mm -hmm. um, really um, brilliant, strong women. And I would say the same thing if they were men, brilliant, strong. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, but I've witnessed the, you know, if it's a guy, he's incredibly assertive. If it's a woman, she's the B word. She's the B word. Yeah. And, yeah. um, I, I hope over time that will stop. I, I had I had a similar conversation recently and I said, you know, 
my son doesn't see race or gender or religion or sexual identity. He doesn't see that. He doesn't see that his friends are a certain color or a certain gender or a certain sexual preference. They're just Joey or mm -hmm. Donna or, you know, right. and I do believe that over time that will tend to make its way into our society and it'll be less of an issue. Well, I, I, I so appreciate your thoughts on that. And, you know, kind of dovetailing in terms of, you know, we've had conversations about, you know, my own leadership growth and, and uh, development. And, and we talked about the subject of imposter syndrome or complex. And I want to talk to you about that. I want to just get your views. Do you think that Certain people do do women face that challenge more because maybe they're in rooms that they had to fight to get in. Do you think men have it as well? You know, just what it, what what made you raise that? And and feel free to use me as an example. Yeah, well, no, amongst I friends, I would never do that. Um, those conversations are completely. Off I the understand, record. but I think it's important because, again. We are becoming we 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 in terms of leaders in business and in in different areas. Um, we don't share the struggles, the challenges, and and when you don't share, there creates this false disconnect that people believe that there's nothing that they can do. You know, Oprah was just born Oprah. I'm sure she wasn't. Like I'm sure she had struggles, no, if right? You, if you read her story, she indeed, had many indeed, many struggles. Indeed. So uh, here's the. Let me set it up this way because it's a bit of a problem. Yes. As you're moving along your career and looking at what's next, you always want to build upon that. Well, to do that, whatever that next position is, you are never fully prepared ever. Excellent. I don't care who Excellent it point. is. Yes. You're never prepared for that next step. So you jump into it, right? And you want to portray that you've got it all under control. And you may not. As a matter of fact, I would venture to guess and I'd be curious to see the responses to this. Most people feel like an imposter for the first three, six, sometimes it's 12 months until you really get that job, all of the different um, parameters under your belt. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think everyone, uh, not everyone, that would be a ridiculous statement. I think most people feel a sense of being an imposter or a bit of a fish out of water in whatever their new role is. When it comes to men and women, I think men feel it as much as women do. They just don't talk about they it. They don't talk about it. And here's the problem with that. So as you go through this, if you don't talk about it and you have to figure out what your own way is, you're never actually going to get the answers because you're afraid to ask questions. Yes. Because you're going to get exactly, found out. Exactly. Exactly. So, I, you know, my my biggest piece of advice and I am living it now is don't be afraid to ask a question. Don't be afraid to say, how does that work? Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, part of it is you don't want to hear those words come out of your mouth. I don't get it. I don't understand. Especially if you're a leader, you know, if, if yeah. you've got a staff of however many people, right. they're looking up to you. You don't want your leader to say, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> but I think there are ways to investigate that. I think um, it, it is so anxiety producing for many people that it lingers because they're afraid it's so to true. take that chance. It's true. So what I would suggest is come up with your own framework for, for what's comfortable yes. and figure out in a smart way how to ask those questions mm -hmm. so you don't necessarily sound like you're ignorant. So instead of saying, I don't understand, yes. you can ask questions like, 
Can you tell me how we did that last year? Correct. What did it look like? Correct. What worked and what didn't work? Mm-hmm. How, what was the process? It's true, because guess what? You're empowering the people that you're working with. You're, you're, um, you know, I actually heard the treasurer of the United States, uh, the current treasurer, uh, Jovita uh, Carranza, say that very thing that she never felt the pressure to be the subject matter expert of everything. Um, but she would educate herself through her team. And that that's a win-win, right? Because you're showing that you're entrusting them. They've been here 10, 15, 20 years that you're listening. What you re- referenced earlier, you're not just talking all the time. Usually people that are talking all the time, you know, they may be covering up for other inadequacies, but people who are really listening and asking questions, those probative questions, you're not only empowering the other people, you're educating yourself too. And to your your point, you're in a new climate, you're in a new culture. You do need that educational period. That's, that is a person that is confident in what they know and confident in what they don't know, but willing to educate themselves. So I think the dialogue and asking those questions is a leadership skill we all need to um, adopt. Well, and there are two really interesting things that that happen because of it. When you ask your team some of the more probing questions that aren't, I don't get it, mm-hmm. but more, you know, as I just described, what you'll find very often is they have an opinion that they have not been asked to share exactly. before. And yes. in the case of my staff, because they are so phenomenal, mm-hmm. the ideas that come out are the thoughts about what may or may not work in the future, which they've never really been. And not because their previous managers hadn't asked it. It's just you get into a pattern. Of, it's kind of in a groove. It is. You're just doing meeting those deadlines. So you're not stepping back from your business. You're working in it and not on it. So you're asking those bigger questions that help everyone. So it ends up empowering them not only to be able to be involved, but to share an opinion on something that may or may not have worked. And what very often happens in our meetings, um, we tend to be an organization that has very few internal meetings. We have a few every week that are, they move relatively quickly, but often in those, in those meetings, when someone I'll ask that question, it will facilitate or solicit a new idea Mm -hmm. or a new thought or something else that we're doing. And it's interesting to watch around the table with my management team, how much they'll say, yeah, you know, I was thinking about the same thing, just didn't really have an opportunity to share it. And so we've made some subtle and not so subtle changes off of those discussions. The second thing that happens is if you're listening, you tend not to have to ask that question again. Yes. And what <laughs> I have perfect, what I've found yes. is asking it once is okay. Asking it more than once is not okay. Is not okay. So you, there is some responsibility in, in, in trying to get out of being an imposter Yes, where you have to process that information. And if you don't understand it, Ask in the moment, not a week. I got it. Afterward. Ask Excellent. then and say, okay, I'm not quite sure. I see how that comes together. That's um, wonderful. So that's, those are two little things that I those tend to. Those are two big things. Big things. I love it. Two nuggets. Two nuggets. And that's what we want to do here. I want to end on a more personal note because, um, you know, we've alluded to it earlier, but I think sharing stories of adversity and resilience are some of the biggest nuggets that we can share as leaders. Um, so I want to ask you, Peter, what, give me one story that, um, exemplifies your resilience. And in a second part of that would be, did your faith practice, did anything help you come out of that on the other side? If not, 
fine. But I just would love for our audience to know there that you had some challenges and how did you overcome those? Um, if picking one is, if you pick, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I know we've got plenty, but just one. I, I've had, I've and had you're a good. Lot. You're, we're good on time. All right, just, good. Because um, there is one other thing I'd like to come back to before yes. we. So I don't, you know, I would tell you that um, in 1989, I joined a company, a software company out on the Dulles Till Road. It was my second experience in the software industry. Um, it was one of those high powered, you know, huge rounds of equity, uh, ping pong tables, you know, foosball tables, breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, whatever we wanted. It was um, and I had no idea what I was doing. It, truly. Um, it was very much a, a graphical user interface for Unix based workstations. Um, and I, you know, for some unknown reason, they kept promoting me. So I went from sales assistant to salesperson and eventually to international sales coordinator working with our distributors overseas. And then, um, we ran out of money. We ran out of the bulk of our money. And before we got our second round of funding, um, I was fired. Um, along with about, I don't know, maybe a third of the sales staff. Yeah. I don't know what percentage it was. And that was devastating. It was the day before my birthday. Um, and I just remember thinking, I, I'm done. I've never been fired. I've never been, you know, I hadn't had that many jobs, but I'd always performed Very pretty well, well and yeah. been, um, a, you know, kind of a, a rewarded employee. So that was shocking to me to walk in and be escorted out with a box to my car. It was devastating. Um, and at the age of, you know, however old I was in um, 89, so 25, I remember I literally sat in my car and cried. Yes. And I was like, yes. this is horrible. Um, and then over the next couple of days, the CEO called me and said, we made a mistake and you should come back. And I remember thinking to myself, this is an opportunity for me. Um, and it, it ended up being an opportunity. And uh, my girlfriend at the time, who I later married, found an ad in a paper for an ad sales position at a company called Hanley Wood. Hmm. And I went in um, and I didn't get the job. Um, and they called me back and they said, you didn't get the job that you applied for, but we liked you and we want to set up this other job. Well, it was not nearly as an attractive job. It was um, selling a much lower end product. It was, you know, not their core business, mm -hmm. but I liked the company and I wanted a job. Um, and it was in a cool office building right downtown, you know, it was perfect. So I took a risk and it was not the job I wanted. And Thank goodness the company was growing. The It was Hanley Wood Publishing. Mm -hmm. uh, the team, the management team and the ownership group was phenomenal. Um, and I ended up getting, I moved on through that company over a three and a half, four year period. Um, so I, it was that feeling of going from desperation to, oh my gosh, I have this job I got fired from that wants me back. I ended up between that consulting with my first software company so I was all of a sudden a consultant and I use little things to kind of motivate me and get me moving. Yes. Um, and so, you know, for me, I think that was probably both the low point, but a recognition that if you if you stay focused and don't take any time and make getting a job your full time job, that yes. somehow good things happen. And it just so I got very lucky. Yeah, well, I, I think that, um, you know. Luck has little to do with it. I think you're absolute kick-ass. Can I say that? Yeah, it's my own podcast. I can totally <laughs> say it. 
but your tenacity and your belief in yourself. And you had a support system there that believed in you too, to get you back on, on to your path. I, I love that. Story. Well, my mom was my um, beacon. Uh, she was a single mom who worked her tail off. Um, her work ethic and her dedication were um, very remarkable. And I felt, I feel to this day fortunate that um, I could be a part of that and watch it and hopefully soak a little, absorb a little bit of it. Absolutely. Um, there's one other quick thing I, I wanted love to chat to about. Say we've, yes, I love We've it. talked about this and I know you have several small businesses that are listening now. Yes. Um, and I just wanted to, you know, for your audience, there's a, a lot of questions that I get posed. How does a small business really um, put themselves? You. See, you distracted me so much. That the main question I wanted to ask you, <laughs> I totally forgot about. Yes, please, Peter, tell us how. I'll, look, you know I love media. You know I love um, marrying media, media and the business. Tell us how can small businesses be relevant to people like yourself? So um, it's more to our readers and, and to our editors, quite mm -hmm, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, but there are a couple of things that I, I just as a baseline. Small business is no less interesting than big business. Big business is no more interesting than small business. Excellent. And I would tell you in this market, and if you look at the growth, Stephen Fuller, who heads up uh, George Mason's economic department, the Stephen Fuller Institute, you know, when he looks at the drastic change in the, the percentage of the of our local budget due to government spending mm -hmm. is going to be about 10 percent less this year than it was 10 years ago. But the federal government is spending about the same amount of money it did. Okay. That increase in in non-federal spending is is a lot due to small business. Hmm. So it's driving our economy. I think small business doesn't understand that they have great stories to tell. Right. So, but here's the one thing: most media, especially news media, is not necessarily doesn't mean they're not interested. Is not necessarily interested in. It's a great company. Here's how it started. It's a wonderful story. What we're looking for is relevant news that is breaking now. So something dynamic that's happening in your business yes. it might be a new contract that you've won. It might be a new employee that you've hired, a new direction your company's going in, an acquisition, a company you've jettisoned as part of your portfolio, a great project you're working on, but it needs to be timely. Yes. You should always be looking for the timely hook. That's for the timely Washington hook. Business Journal. Yes. As a, if you're pursuing media in just overall, you need to be sure that you've got the story down and that you understand the media vehicle in which you're pitching. Correct. So if it's, you know, there's a different story to be told if you're a lifestyle media outlet, you know, it, it, you would not tell the same story to the Washington Business Journal that you would tell to Brightest Young Things. It just wouldn't, right. it would be uh, incongruous. So you have to understand what is interesting to the to the team who's putting together the editorial platform. And the only reason they care is because that's what their readership wants. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to read the whatever, read it, listen to it, watch it, wherever you want to be, understand the ethos and formulate your pitch against that ethos. And I think if you do that and can find worthwhile stories, there's plenty of coverage to be had. I can tell you, our editorial team is always looking for those hidden gems. Mm -hmm. I think maybe more because the big news comes to us. Right. If you're right. a big company That's and you've true. got and you a communications team, yes, team absolutely, exactly absolutely. in place, it's just going to roll in where we don't get 
because we don't know the stories. Because we don't know, yeah. So when someone calls in and says, hey, I'm a little company with a big story, our editors love it. Um, and if you look at our, uh, you know, this year our family-owned business was a hookah company out in Sterling. It, you know, that we had never heard of. They approached us, but it's been in business since the mid 1800s. So, you know, there are these amazing, you know, and quite frankly, uh, if you look at Cobra Romney Johnson, um, you know, that's a story that you, for uh, for all your love of media, you don't tell often enough. I do not tell often enough. And, you know, when you were in front of our editors, their ears perked up because it's, it is newsworthy. I mean, that is, you talk about it, there's this little development project that you're doing. It's not so little. Half a billion dollars. It's not too small, right? Not too small. So, you are amazing. We obviously could do this all day. Are we done? We are done. It's more than I know. I'm so sad. I I really am. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. Wasn't this great? Yeah. So, I appreciate you so just immensely, not only for what you do for your team, but what you do for your friends and your colleagues. You really enrich our lives with just your care, the care that you have for us and the thing that we want to produce in our lives. So I appreciate you. It goes both so ways. So much, so much. Um, that does it for CEOs and Soul Talk. I have, I think you all will see, I enjoyed this immensely. We're going to do this again and again. I want to bring you all kinds of great stories. Peter is just but one um, of the people that have um, enriched our lives, enriched our business, and really help us, empower us to be the CEOs of our own lives. All right, you all take care. God bless. And I'll talk to you soon.